Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's biggest talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, leaders and founders who are changing the healthcare landscape in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before we get into today's show, there's a couple of little bits of admin that we have to go through. Number one, I want everyone to follow us on the socials, which is at Health Tech Hour. Please also follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio, to stay on top of all of the great content and all of the great presenters that we have coming up. Now, uh, that's the admin done and dusted, and so we can get on to today's show. Um, today's show is actually focused on patient data, data protection, and cybersecurity. Now, I know that that might sound a little technical to a few listeners, but, and it's a big but, there's been an explosion, I think everyone's aware of this, there's been an explosion in um, the healthcare system in terms of digital technology and accessing healthcare digitally in the last 12 months. More and more healthcare, more and more health interactions rely on digital technology, digital healthcare companies, third parties that are working with the healthcare system, whether it's NHS or private. So this means that more and more of our data, our health data and our personal data is being recorded, stored and processed by more and more organizations. As more and more organizations start to help across the healthcare system, our data is shared more widely and so on and so forth. So it really matters what these companies do with our data and it really matters that we care about what they do. So why, why should we care? Why should we care about these things? And that's what we're going to find out in today's show. Um, today's show also gives me the chance to get two people on who have been hugely helpful and influential in the development of our own company, PocDoc. And two people, it is always an absolute pleasure to talk to. So going alphabetically, as you know, no preference, um, Chris Wilkinson is a cybersecurity expert at Crossword Consulting, which is one of the UK's key cybersecurity companies. Um, Chris advises governments, telcos, energy companies, and healthcare organizations on protecting data um, and data and systems and taking a responsible attitude around information security. Prior to the corporate world, Chris was an officer in the RAF serving in Afghanistan, heading up a unit which focused on military cybersecurity. He was unable to tell me any more information than that. Joining him on today's show is one of the best lawyers I've ever worked with, which is called Mr. James Tunbridge. James is a long-standing world-renowned expert on data governance, including um, drafting the UK's data protection legislation. He's an advisor to both the UK government, global corporations and healthcare organizations. And James has a unique position to relay uh, uh, the key aspects of the laws and crucially what it all means to the person on the street. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. And James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That's uh, that's a pretty great build-up, and uh, I've, I've never been uh, uh, in a, with a name like Tunbridge. I'm always at the end of the alphabet, but I've never had Wilkinson go first. So you, you threw me there. Do you know what? <laughs> I um I actually went off the first letter. I went off the first first name. You know, but that's a good point. That shows a very that shows your attention to detail, James. That makes you that's the reason why you're a very good lawyer. Um, so no, normally we have a three part structure on the show. So we do an origins part then all of the amazing stuff that the person is doing to change the world and then more of a future-facing part. I think with two people on the show, we basically just have to kind of muck in and, and, and crack on, really. So, um, Chris, why don't you give us a bit of background as to how you got interested in cybersecurity? Let's start there. 
Yeah, certainly. So um, there's a film that starred Robert Redford and uh, Sidney Poitier back in the 90s called Sneakers, um, which is still worth a watch now. It's got Dan Aykroyd in it as well. And I watched that um, while I was doing my university degree. Uh, I was doing computer science at the time. And I remember speaking to one of my um, lecturers there about it and they completely dismissed it and didn't take any of it seriously at all, which was which was strange. Um, I mean, this is back uh, about 20 years ago now um and uh that really got me interested in in the whole uh, world of cyber security and information security and then as as you said in your introduction when i was in the military i did part of it uh for them as well and again they uh have always had a uh, an interest in it and um for, for obvious reasons but most of their details originally focused around um physical protections and printed media and uh, and the like and they've been like a lot of organizations struggling to keep up with the pace of change and the changing sort of threat environment that the people are met with so that's sort of how i i got into it okay and um, what just to go back what's the film sneakers about for anyone that doesn't know uh, so it's about a um, a group of information security professionals uh, and they're all a little bit washed up and they come from various different backgrounds. And there's a um, a box that they accidentally discover that can break any code in the world. Um, and they have to sort of through various uh, mishaps, try and steal it back um, from some baddies and okay. uh, try and um, put it into a safe place. So. And, and like just to your lecturer or lecturers, was your was your point around what what, what piqued your interest specifically in it that the lecturers then poo pooed effectively? So I I was to watch this film and there was a series of um, ways that they either broke into various systems both physically and, and electronically and I saw it and thought well surely someone's got to be doing something about this because it's only going to get we're we're all studying computers we're all studying networks we're all studying all this stuff and we've not looked at any element of security which is oh. fund- fundamental uh, at that time and now obviously degrees are special specialized in certain um subjects so you're not going to cover everything but where when i said about this i said oh i'd like to do this as a, as a career and they said oh well it's a bit that's just uh just a person on the gate with a walkie-talkie isn't it you don't want to be that person <laughs> which um which is not particularly nice in terms of, you know, it's a noble profession doing physical security, but also yeah. that's not it at all. So there was a real, um, just a kind of, well, it's just someone else will deal with it or it's never going to be that much of a problem. And then fast forward, no, fortunately, fast forward a few years and, and I, um, I get to spend a lot of time speaking to a lot of great people about security now. Okay, so we're going to jump around a bit because we have to with a show with two people, but just going to ask you one more question and then we'll come to James. How would you define cybersecurity and why does it matter? Um, so that's a, so I'll give a consultant answer then to, to, to that. Well, I mean, so you could it, give me an honest answer as yeah. well. That would be helpful. <laughs> sure. So, um, so it depends really. So the cybersecurity, my definition is, is understanding the information and the uh, environment that your organization or you operate in and then the security element of that is applying um various measures uh both um physical electronical and uh, and uh, technical in in protecting that okay and what why does that matter in general i mean what to a company or to the individuals sure so um back in 2017 the economist published a story that's worth 
reading called um, The World's Most Valuable Resource is No Longer Oil But Data. And they were talking about how the, the, uh, the drive will move away from physical attributes to, towards um, uh, virtual ones. So if you look at like a, f- a firm like Facebook, so they've got 1.7 billion active users and probably climbing. So, and they make their money by analyzing your data and then allowing advertisers to um, target you for, for, for adverts. Um, and, you know, you think about the size of a country, that's probably either the second largest or, or the nearly the largest country in the world. And if you, if you are not paying for a service, then your data and, um, and everything about you is the service to them. So all these things that we um, uh, willfully sign up to, but don't think about um so just clicking yes and no on the um terms and conditions and some of these terms and conditions run on to uh, longer than macbeth so i think tiktok it would take you three or four hours solidly reading to to work through that yeah that's something i want to pick up with james in a second because that, mm. that's that's yeah the, i mean no one's ever going to read them that's no. kind of the point of them but the point of them is that you do read <laughs> them so it's that was a bit confusing but anyway sorry carry on definitely no 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 definitely not so i mean the it matters because everybody's life um and i'll I'll go out there and say everybody's life involves some level of digital information um and it's gonna get a larger issue as things get more interconnected and everything like that so the reason you need to care about it is that if you care about anything to do with money your uh health as we'll probably come on to in, in a bit and or uh those others that surround you you need to have an understanding of your uh, virtual presence in the world that makes sense so on on that note about data let's go to james so james at what point in in your legal career or development did you become extremely interested in data individual data data governance and and why what 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 helped what made that transition for you well, I, I know precisely. Unfortunately, I probably can't give the full details because oh. it's a client scenario. Um, but um, the, I mean, I've, I've been a, a lawyer practicing in the technology space for 20 years. And in the early 2000s, I had a client come to me who was seeking to engage with thousands of people through uh, telephone-based systems. Um, effectively, let's call it marketing and surveying and that kind of thing. Um, and they came up against data regulation and they came up against uh, the information commissioner's office specifically telling them that they couldn't, couldn't do some of the things that they want to do. Um, and uh, they happened to be talking to me about something else. And it was the spark moment that, that gave me the excuse to really dive deep. Okay. And then because um, I have a sort of an interest in politics and actually end up I have certain political clients, including the government, when I say politics. Um, I've ended up particularly engaging with some of the areas that don't, doesn't get as much attention in relation to the permissibility of just society talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, breaking it down to a really local level, if you're living somewhere and you really don't want them building a rubbish dump on the edge of town, old school community would sort of call a public meeting get together but actually that takes place online now whether it's through a facebook forum or a whatsapp messaging or whatever um and um there's 
the, the rules and guidance for a lot of the regulations have been written for organizations as if you you're a FTSE 100 company and you can afford compliance officers. Yeah. And so I, I do a great deal of, of work to support educational organizations and community organizations not getting into trouble when they just want to communicate, basically. Okay. And what, um, why, is, why is data, data ownership, data governance so important or should be so important to people on the street? A little bit of a continuation from what Chris was talking about. Yeah, I mean, Chris um, made some good points and, um, you know, it's an interesting observation about whether anybody ever reads the details of terms and conditions. And it's where actually there's some good things happening and some not so good things happening in legal compliance. Those things that can be annoying, those pop ups for cookies. One of the good things, in, in essence, is it's it's recognised that individuals won't necessarily pull the way through the entire terms and conditions, but it's forced the person that wants to engage to put something a bit more upfront and in your face about what they are and aren't doing. People are still sneaky with it. You'll find that um, if you click the yes on the front page, it will just tick all sorts of boxes to all sorts of activity. If you click on my preferences, you'll find that they have then actually switched all of your on preferences to off preferences. Now, this is because, to, to sort of Chris's point, you know, it's it's been sort of, buzzed around for five six years mm. i remember talking to the governor of the bank of england about it you know data is the new oil and all that kind of thing because as chris says there's a great deal of service on the internet that we expect to be free there are one or two people that have tried to buck that chain the the newspapers in particular because they've struggled with it but at short nothing's free mm. and what's happening is that um, there are terabytes just huge huge amounts of data about each of us I mean, the amount of data that, that Amazon has on, on people would really sort of blow the mind if you tried to work out just how much. Mm. So much so that uh, to illustrate my point about why your data is important, they are looking at trialing a service where instead of you going onto their website because you want to buy a new sun lounger or a, a pair of boots or whatever it is and ordering it, they think they've got enough data on your buying habits now that they're going to have a van turn up at your door, which you didn't ask for. And the guy's going to ring the bell and show you a box of stuff and say, we thought you might like some of this because they know that you buy honey roughly every six weeks. And so there'll be a jar of honey in the box. Wow. And they think that they've got enough data points that they can do that successfully. And the reason they want to do that is it actually allows them to push down the cost of delivery because they can create delivery runs that every month or every day or every week are going to certain places, knocking on certain doors, fairly confident that they'll sell enough goods that you'll just take them. Wow. And, you know, when you start getting to conversations around that or um, the issue wrongly, in my opinion, that some people think that the information on data is like hypnotism. Has it stolen the US election? Has it changed the UK referendum outcome? No, it hasn't. It's about targeted advertising. And it goes back to a very simple point that started about 100 years ago, mainly at railway stations, because it used to be that unsophisticatedly soap companies would buy billboards for soap. Mm. And then at some point, somebody realized that billboards at soap at railway stations in, say, 1930 wasn't the target audience because the people on the trains at the time were office workers and the people that stayed at home and looked after the house weren't at that train station. So yeah. they started moving to magazines that people would, you know, that good, good home uh, keepers and all that stuff. And all we're really talking about is the targeting. But the reason to, to draw finally to the point, <laughs> uh, the, when you start thinking about all of that, 
people are making judgments about you that could be impacting your life. If those data points are being used to the point where you can now walk into uh, a, a, a garage selling cars, and if you've got certain banking apps on your phone, the geolocator will ping and instantaneously tell you what kind of loan or credit offering is available if you think you're about to buy a car. Mm. Now, on the one hand, isn't that amazing and convenient? On the other hand, if it actually is making the wrong conclusion because it's misread the data points, because I recently found that I seem to be constantly being sent adverts for wine, because clearly what I've been reading online, they yeah. think I'm the kind of middle class person that wants to buy lots of wine. And I don't, but I'm getting those adverts. And it's an irritation. But the problem is that if, if there isn't some rule and regulation around how the data is dealt with, you can find you can't get credit. You can't get insurance. Yep. Important decisions about you are being made. And that's why I've got to get the balance right between how the data is obtained and used and your right to say, hang on, you've got that wrong. Yeah. I do deserve a, a credit rating no, I, that's better than the one you've given me. I think that's a really good point, which is basically that, yes, on the one hand, digital technologies in health and other places obviously makes everyone's life easier in certain ways or healthcare mm. cheaper or more accessible or more efficient. But actually on the other side of things, if it goes wrong, it can go wrong in a really bad way. And that can lead to some very serious problems for people. So let's, let's jump to the health data piece of it now, which is that, is there a difference legally or, or, or in terms of severity or, or sensitivity versus data or health data patient data james you could probably yeah the short answer is there is okay um we well, there are two principal categorizations there's personal data which is any data that links to you whether it's your name your address or whatever and then there's what people sometimes call sensitive uh data which are a specific set of categorizations health data being one of them and that's because understandably people are more concerned and self-conscious about who knows what about their health and actually, right now, we're living in a unique time, thanks to the, to the consequences of the COVID-19 outbreak, where you've got people rather relaxed about the concept of health passports and health mm. data. And I think not having a societal conversation that we need to have, that if we accept that basis to deal with this pandemic, what door does that open? If you've got HIV, are you going to have to disclose that to... Uh, people that might be putting you on an aeroplane or letting you into a concert venue or something else, if you've got any other kind of illness, or indeed if that data is shared with insurance companies, health mm. insurance is really important, but the access to health insurance is really important. You can understand from the health insurance company that they want to take lots of premiums off super healthy people that never call upon them, but are you going to find that the information that is available and being used then gets in the way of you accessing that service and do we then have a societal problem that the only people that can get health insurance are those that don't really need it and the final point on this because it's very current at least in the uk um you know we've we've just had the government back down from a massive data sharing plan for health data held by your family doctor your general practitioner um i'm actually a bit of a proponent of making use of the unique nature of British health data that we've got cradle to grave data for all citizens going back 60 odd years, thanks to our national health service system. But where I'm relaxed is taking large data sets about effectiveness of cancer therapies for research purposes. I'm much more concerned about the fact that actually without proper safeguards, 
it would be possible for your name in every detail, your vaccination records, your children's health records to, to be out there, which can be used for good or evil. So you've kind of yeah. we need to be talking about this. So I think that's a good point. So, Chris, just in general, on I know that we've spoken before, just just you and I about the the. Well, I, th- I think with concepts like health passports and and the the data sharing plan between GPs and and all, all, all those things where there's there's definitely two sides to the argument, which is people are trying to do it for the right reasons, I, I believe. Mm. But there's so many other considerations, not just from a. I know that the health passport, for example, there's a there's a huge te- te- technology burden that you have to get over for that to be secure just in to, to, to even function as you wish it to function and then to, to remain secure and remain unhackable and all of the back-end security would work. So, and then to, to, to James's point around the risks of transferring or allowing access to huge data sets that have personal information in them. What does that kind of look like from a cybersecurity or information security perspective? Like what do you think about, about those plans and what, what, what concerns would you have? Um, so they are they are worrying, uh, to be honest. And I think um, going back to some of the conversations we had earlier, and, and James's point about people just accepting services online and uh, and then being free. I think there's a it's a generational view as well. So baby boomers and my parents, for example, hugely concerned about anything online. But my uh, I've got uh, several children, and they're starting to get more and more into um to being online, and they just don't see it as an issue. They'll click OK, and they sort of a part of um this sort of slightly strange meta organization as well so they'll watch people watching videos of people watching videos it's just it's oh, wow. crazy which which okay. is strange but the going back to you, how you sort of secure this is that it's part of people taking individual responsibility from from a patient's point of view and understanding what services they're signing up to now they might not have an issue uh, a, uh, a way of opting out um, if there is a national passport uh, for vaccinations rollout, but there are some that they they can um, they can opt out of and think about it. Now, uh, I would also urge people to hold their organisations that they work with to account. So, for example, I my GP um, uh, had my wrong email address, and they were sending appointment data quite merrily to a random email address um, for four months. Now they, they dealt with it really, really well. Um, and, and that was great. Uh, but if I hadn't said something, then that would have carried on and hopefully that's, that's helped others. Um, so concerns for, for cybersecurity is again, all this data and it's the aggregation of data that's really, uh, really worrying. So going back to my previous, previous life, um, where if they were, uh, devising an information picture on on somebody uh, in the military or, or or that sort of thing, um, they want to gather lots as much data as they can and then start to make linkages. So back to James's point about Amazon um, uh, rocking up this box and and saying you've got to do this. If you've got access to the patient data, not only would um, you can start to get extra bits of information. So from you could plot where people's GP used to be to so see where people used to move to if they had other um other uh things wrong with them um so for healthcare providers i think there is a a fundamental decision to be made that they've got to take this seriously this isn't going to go away and it is a uh cost of business that they're going to have to support and with your organization steve you know you've taken this and looked at it as an enabler 
and something that you can differentiate against um, other organizations. And, you know, you sort of are very much front and center with we are secure, we want to be and, and we, uh, we need to, to maintain this posture. Yeah. And is there, is there, I mean, we obviously at Pogtop, we, we, you know, we came to both of you guys relatively early and said, look, we, 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 we know data security is important and we'd like to work out, work that, that out. But are there specific things, I guess, starting with the cybersecurity perspective, are there specific things that, that particular, particularly healthcare organizations, because it's a health tech show that they should be doing as standard that potentially are not being done or like what, how, what's your view generally right now? Mm-hmm. So, um absolutely what they what organizations need to do you know particularly in healthcare is understand the information they hold why they hold that and what they're going to could do with it so um and then once they've got that understanding they can work out the level of security they need to to apply now it's all about proportionality of security so there's no point in spending your entire operational budget on security and never actually developing anything because there's no point in that in the same way that it, it needs to be balanced. So organizations really need to understand the regulatory environment they operate in. So especially if it's going to be a, uh, a healthcare company that breed, that goes across different um, uh, legal jurisdictions. So certainly some of the regulations uh, in places like Germany are much uh, stronger than in the UK and, and very different uh, to say the US. And um, they really should, seek help if they don't have um that have the expertise inside now i'm not saying that they need to take on you know the first hire a, a startup needs to be is a head of security but they need to be able to seek help in understanding what they need to do and how they can do this in a proportional way okay and um that makes sense so one thing james i want to come back to you on is there's a term at the moment where for a while it's been thrown around willy nilly is gdpr Okay, and it gets 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 used a lot. I'm sure it gets used wrongly quite a lot. What I'd like to understand, perhaps you could explain to everyone listening, is what does it really mean? But but specifically, why does it matter to the person on the street, or what matters about it to the person on the street? And you know, particularly within a health setting. Sure. Well, I mean, I suppose if I was giving you a proper answer to that, I've got to say, sorry to Chris, you're not saying another word for the next hour. Yeah, um, let's try. But, but, yeah. I've, got, I've got a lot more questions, guys. So, yeah. <laughs> but let, let, me, let me say, I mean, first of all, yeah, people get GDPR wrong. Now, um, here in the UK, um, we've just had the so-called Tigger report, which is a technology and innovation report uh, authored by three very well-known and senior politicians, one of whom is a former leader of the party of government. Um, and it just shocks me, even though a couple of them I would call personal friends as the lead authors, whoever prepared the content was just totally wrong. Wow. Uh, literally. Now, this is a government paper. So wow. I've had a conversation with government last week saying, do you realise this? Um, and I'll be working on a, on a new white paper as a result. <laughs> um, but but um, let's, let's start with some basic fundamentals and, and perhaps touching a little bit on, on what Chris said about regulators and how it varies. GDPR actually is generally a good thing. And you'll hear a lot of people won't say that. And in fact, some people I work with very closely would love to rip it apart. But I think it's because they don't fully understand it. And I think it's because they only focus on the bad bits because I don't pretend it's perfect. But in essence, it's actually a pretty well written piece of legislation that now blankets the whole of Europe, including the UK. We have something called the UK GDPR now, which is effectively the same thing. It's just a Brexit reference. Um, 
And it sets down some nice clear rules, which are generally quite flexible based on the size of the organization. So it's things like an accuracy right. So Chris's example about the doctor, it's giving citizens an individual right that when you spot that someone's got the wrong email and they keep throwing out messages to somebody else, you have an actual right to demand that they correct and get that into their system in the right way. And, they are, and, have, and also that they're legally obligated to do that. Yes. Right. And, and, it, and, and the regulator then comes in because if you're yeah. an individual citizen, you haven't got the time or effort or will to moan at the bank, the doctor or whoever it is. You can contact the regulator and the regulator on your behalf will demand it and fine them, which is therefore why businesses comply. Mm. Now, just touching briefly there on the different issues of regulation. So the law is not uniform around the world, but for Europe, GDPR has become a global standard, which a lot of other countries are looking to. And that's been really, really good. It's not so much that Germany has different law and regulation, although there are smaller areas. But what there is a massive difference in relation to is the attitude and behavior of regulators country to country. And Germany has more than one regulator. And there's a difference even there between the northern and the southern. Um, and, and it's reflective of societal behaviors. So, uh, for example, one of the things that I persuaded the UK government not to do is to live off the fines. So uh, mm. because in some countries, Spain was one of them, their approach to funding their regulator pre-GDPR was we've got to pay for a regulator. We need a regulator to exist. Mm. So what we'll do is uh, the fines they collect can be used to fund the regulator. Might sound simple, but it, in my opinion, created the concept of the officious traffic warden. Yeah, because actually, yeah, he's just, they're hand, they're just handing, out, they're they're handing out tickets because they want to put a new you know, fountain in the lobby. So uh, one of the things that the UK does is the UK does not fund its regulator that way. It's paid for from central taxation. Fines are collected and go into central taxation, but the regulator doesn't have more money because it fines more. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And it's one of the reasons why when you're a business, Steve, and you're setting up these days, you don't want to just think about jurisdiction from the point of view of tax. You want to think about your regulatory burden and, and where you're located is the first pointer as to which regulator for this stuff you're going to be subject to. Mm. And there is a significant difference around the world. So um, my bottom line is GDPR is generally speaking quite a positive thing because it's created a set of, I don't like this expression, but it might be easy to, to grasp, a sort of human rights for the digital age. Okay. It's, it's created a set of rights that you, the individual, are entitled to rely upon and where you can call upon a regulator to enforce them if you need that help. And, and that's, uh, generally speaking, a positive thing. The difficulty is that legislators struggle to keep up with the pace of technology. Yeah. GDPR already has some challenges, and maybe I'll just touch on one of those, oh. because I am concerned that in the Tigger report, uh, the UK uh, is said to be considering amending uh, Article 22 of the regulation, which doesn't mean anything to anyone that doesn't read well, the regulation. I was going to say, James, I must confess that's that's not one of my favourite articles <laughs> in the legislation. But, I mean, it, it's top three. But, but it's, it's, it, it should be because it's a really important safeguard. It's the rule that says you cannot, as an individual, be subject solely to automated decision-making. Now, okay. that horrifies mm. IT professionals and businesses who are heavily investing in computer systems to avoid human beings being paid and possibly but, making mistakes but i think but, that's, yeah that's critical that's a critical article as far as healthcare goes surely right because healthcare of all areas 
must have to have there must have to be some safety valve at some point that a human mm. interacts yes. so so I, I think it's one of the most important things and i've had i've had I, I took part in an international meeting in north america on this and i was initially attacked by somebody who really should know their stuff um that it was a terrible idea because computers don't make mistakes to which i said yes but human data inputters do yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure I agree that computers don't make mistakes, but human well, computers definitely do. The, the, the point being is that if, if a piece of software or an algorithm or whatever is running, it does what it's meant to do. So if you set it up correctly, mm-hmm. it's a lot less likely to make a, a, any kind of concerning issue because it shouldn't compared yep. to the human error. Yep. However, to my point about, um, you know, actually, Steve, you've got a reasonably uh, unique uh, surname, but but... Chris, you've got a surname I've come across many times, and I'm sure there's probably several thousand Chris Wilkinsons in this mm. country. Now, if you find that there's a Chris Wilkinson that lives in your town and somebody makes the mistake of associating you, Chris Wilkinson, with another Chris Wilkinson who's got a, a terminal illness and suddenly mm. you can't get your health insurance because of that issue, yeah. the mm. importance of that regulatory rule is basically human oversight. So it doesn't say that you can't, be subject to an automated decision process but what it says is that can't be the last stop so there's no computer says no allowed Mm. and i happen to think that's quite an important protection but let's let's talk about that as as because i mean i feel like i've definitely been in situations with organizations some of them in health some of them not in health where you end up in a computer says no situation so in that situation are you as an individual you basically have to go to the the information commissioner's office to the regulator to say i'm in this situation i'm not getting a correct response can you please look into it is that what people have to do um that's a little bit harder to to unpick because it may or may not be but the the starting point is you've obviously got to have reasonable faith that you're getting the wrong answer because it's an automated decision that's got some error in it. Which, which mm. in itself is quite hard to figure out, right? Mm. Yes. You, you don't know why you got declined for the health insurance necessarily. But, but where, where the rule should be helping you, let's stick with the concept of the health insurance company to stay within our sort of general scenario. So you think that you've got a right under your health uh, policy to access a particular consultant or and, and you're talking to someone who's saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. And if, if from that conversation you start to realize, well, it's because they've associated me with the wrong person, mm. you know, um, then you can say, well, I, I, I am allowed to sort of check the accuracy of my records, a subject access request or whatever. Right. So you might have to do some different steps. But, but the business should know that when you start using those buzzwords, you start asking those questions, they can't ignore you. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, if yeah, they yeah. then ignore you, you go to the regulator. Presumably, but they can also be it, as well. It's no, you know, no law can protect you from someone who just wants to ignore the law or is badly yeah. organised. But but larger organisations just know they can't ignore this stuff, and therefore it should now be easier for you to, um, you know, get, get get a human being to look at it for you. Mm, that makes sense. So, um, Chris, just to just to come to you for a second. There are quite a lot of stories every now and again around data breaches. Okay, mm-hmm. in the news quite a bit. And but why? Like, I'm playing devil's advocate. But what? Why? If 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 there was a data breach in a healthcare organisation that I was being treated by, or like my health insurance records or something, why would I care if there's a data breach? I mean, like, I change my password. 
whatever, I just crack on. Why, why should I care? And what can I do about it? How can I hold companies to account to try and ensure that, you know, I'm taking, like, if I wanted to make sure that my data was safe as possible, what could, what steps can an individual take around that? It's a bit of a long-winded question, but, you know. Yes, yeah, sure, certainly. Um, so the, going back to what we spoke about before, it's about them and the individuals taking responsibility for their own, um, uh, their own data. And, using all the security functions that are made available to them. So uh, some organizations offer like a code that you get for your phone or yeah. through something like that. So that's called multi-factor authentication. So you've got your username and password and you've got something else to identify you by or, and authenticate you by. So everything like that you should take up and use. Now, again, it can be a bit of a pain. Oh, I want to get my phone out and, and do this rather than just click OK uh, to go through. But that will prevent um say somebody got hold of your username and password from accessing your account right otherwise they've got no um blockers to doing that okay uh you should as an individual be thinking about um different passwords and password manager so a password manager is a piece of software that will um do all of the boring computer things to do with passwords because humans aren't very good at processing large uh lists of um, numbers characters and punctuation marks but computers are so with a password manager you can set you know your um, passwords with various things to be super long so I think my google password for my account is 47 characters long which is um which is a little excessive but then you know yeah should be quite good but I don't need to worry about it I just need to worry about uh, various elements and it goes through um so for data breaches the reason that um they are concerning and it's not just um, so we handle non uh, health data, and then we'll come on to the other health data. Is that the though that elements of data that gets um, stolen in in the worst case, you could end up with you as an individual being applying for uh, credit cards and loans um, being uh, used to um, you know uh, for identity fraud and you know, fake passports and everything like that. So that's why that's concerning. The other one is they just want to steal money from you. So okay. ideally what they want, uh, you know, it's a business. They're only going to do it in um, in a, a way that they can can make, um, make money. So again, another film reference, but I love my film. So there's a film called uh, Layer Cake, which is all about yep. uh, the movement from um, holding up post offices with a shotgun into drugs. Mm-hmm. My view is that the next generation of that is moving on to ransomware, online fraud and things like that. Because, okay. again, you talked about how can the regulator catch up with them? There are laws that protect people, um, so that Computer Misuse Act, for example, but they're really hard to enforce um, for for governments. And the budgets um, for police forces are minuscule compared with the, the money generated there. So criminals were in the wrong game and now they're no longer so they want to steal money from individuals and companies what um with healthcare it gets even more concerning um because you can end up with uh potentially getting extorted for that information so back to what james was saying about if you have so say if nobody in my town knew that i had um say hiv for example I might get a ransom request to say, we will publish this everywhere. 
that you have this disease and we've got unequivocal proof. So now, again, it's just about making money and they, they generally don't don't care and, and to move forward. I mean, there's um, it's quite interesting. It's quite old now, but there's an interesting book that Michael Crichton wrote called Next. I don't know if anyone's read it. And it's about it bio Crichton's, but not that one. Yes, yeah, so it's about biogen startups. And one of the interesting thing about this is someone's got a particular genetic code that they want and a startup buys that, but it doesn't just buy it for him. It buys it for all subsequent generations and a bit of con 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 contrivance. But in the book, the law sides with the company and they have the right to forcibly remove genetic material from the rest of his bloodline, which is, which is, uh, you know, uh, not the best um, ethical no. approach. So, so yeah, so, wider thing also is is generally vote your feet if you're not comfortable with an organization leave it you know there are alternatives there are well that, I tell you what, let me let me jump in there with in the with the nhs that's kind of tricky right like that you don't you don't you know mm. that's that's kind of hard to you know you can't you can't you you know that's that's hard right i mean but it, it is yeah but i mean i suppose the um the someone like the nhs is um going to be have the ability to be held to a higher standard than than some oh well yeah come on Jeff. you know what i mean you know um so... it's my, my facial expression giving away that i think that you know the issue there is that chris's observations are all sound but there mm. are circumstances where you really have very limited choice or limited options mm. to walk away and indeed um one of the things i think society doesn't do enough talking about is that we have a very simplistic view for the most part that government is good regulators are good we can all get on with our business and be relaxed. Mm. Actually, they're human beings running them. They're fallible. They make mistakes. Mm. And when you do my job, sadly, you see a great deal of those of those yeah. errors. And and actually, as a society, uh, we could do with a few more politely behaved, not not excessive people doing what Chris is talking about and saying, "Hey, I've got issues here, and I and I want you to take action," because mm. that's what forces positive cultural change. Mm. yeah and it's it's an interesting one so one of the largest um security events of recent times was on the nhs so it was a it was a virus called WannaCry that affected huge numbers of systems and that absolutely crippled um departments and various areas and unfortunately that came down to a lack of investment in really really basic uh it updates and and security um, really the, the, it, it was just yeah. an update issue exactly right so they had old kit that wasn't looked after um almost to the point where they didn't click just do it on its own you know that and it cost you know huge amounts of of, of, of money to go through but but yeah one observation that we see um and we push back and i don't know james if you've seen this as well is that gdpr by some organization is viewed as something that happened and they've done it and they don't need to worry about it so they will uh, they have gone out to because there was a big panic on, on getting it in place. They've gone out and they've bought something off the Internet for a few pounds and it will be a piece of paper that says this is how you do GDPR. And they've gone, well, we've got that. They've downloaded it. They've stored it somewhere. And now a few years later, three years later, people are starting to realize, actually, you've done nothing on this at all. Uh, and there is a big view of, oh, it's either we've done it we don't need to worry or we're too small to worry about it or it's all just too complicated and yeah i think that's i think that's a very good point i think actually you can sort of do some helpful sweeping generalizations on this you've got exactly that point 
Um, I think the smart companies actually looked at GDPR and actually have seen positive ways to make use mm. of it. I mean, I've got clients that make a virtue of the fact that they've got a nice clear policy or they make a virtue of their cybersecurity uh, settings and so mm. on. I know larger organizations where the IT guys embraced it to say, actually, uh, the annual budget setting, it was giving them an excuse to say, we can't ignore the need to use the patches and update the IT equipment. Mm. To your point, the uh, NHS actually had a, there was an article on the money last week that they are, and I know this from firsthand information, large numbers of hospitals have got computer systems operating on a Windows system that is no longer supported, that is mm. about to shut down. Well, that, that's kind of, that's not keeping up. Uh, but, but you then move on to the next round. You've got those that did something. Okay, need something. Probably the next error that they made if they're in this category of they put up a policy and they haven't thought about it for three years is they don't see the value. And it's like mm. anything else. You know, your insurance premium no one likes paying it. It's a distressed purchase when you have to call someone like me. But, you know, just a couple of quickies. Um, nearly 5,000 small businesses have been fined by the UK information officer simply for not registering with them. Mm. Right. And, and, and they're, they're not insignificant fines to small businesses. And you've got the other end of the scale where the Marriott Hotel chain, British Airways, Google have all been fined uh, hundreds of millions of pounds for for breaches and errors and issues. And um, this, our lives living online, which has been exacerbated more so because of the, the pandemic type restrictions, um, it's not going away. No business can, can sort of hide from being compliant, just as historically they couldn't ignore being compliant that if you've got an office that you invite people to come in and buy goods at, you know, you can't have a hole in the roof with, with rain coming in. You, you because it's against the law to operate a business that's unsanitary. Well, mm. it's basically the same point. And there are still people that haven't yet embraced the fact that alongside just getting your taxes filed on time, responding to companies' house on time, data compliance and security is just something that needs to be part of business. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I my, my view on it is a bit like health and safety. You know, it's, it, there are, very, very, very few businesses that don't have a health and safety post or a health and safety officer and, and some move towards it in, in their organisation. And that's the mindset that businesses need to be on. No matter what size you are, you need some some level of that security. And as you're saying, James, it, it really, organisations really need to make this as something they're proud of rather than something they begrudgingly do. Yeah, and I think... I would agree with all of that. Um, so I, I, we're, we're kind of coming up on the end of the show now. So um, I wanted just to say thank you to both of you for coming on. Um, I can thoroughly recommend both of these individuals personally, if you want to follow up on any of these conversations, um, the details are on the, are on the site and on the, on, on the socials. Um, but yeah, thank you, James. Thank you, Chris, for coming on. I think it's been awesome. This area obviously is hugely detailed and, um, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of positives happening, but there's also a lot of things to be that we have to keep kind of making, making ourselves aware of, but yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. The pleasure. Thank thanks for inviting me. Good. And thanks to everyone for listening. So yeah, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.